So two and a half years ago, uh, as Dan said, I was serving with uh, Naval Special Warfare. That's our official title, but you know them as Navy SEALs and Navy SWICs. And my team and I found ourselves uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time, behind the wrong lines, and uh, we were being hunted by the enemy. We were about four days with no food uh, in a snowy mountainous terrain and temperatures ranging from uh, 12 to negative 22 degrees, trying to find water from frozen streams and creeks. And eventually, your worst fears come true, and we were captured. We were stripped naked in the elements. We were mocked, humiliated, denied sleep, deprived of food, subjected to mental, physical, emotional, spiritual torment, of which is hard to describe, and a barrage of uh, good cop and bad cop style interrogations, the kind of stuff you see in the movies. After several days of these extreme conditions, um, we were rescued, we were released. But to tell the full story of this picture, although all of that occurred and it actually did happen, it was a training course. It was the Navy Marine Corps SEER School, S-E-R-E, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. SEER School, those of us who graduated, we call it Torture School or Camp Slappy. Um, it's, it, we, we affectionately say it's the best training you've ever received that you never want to do again. Um, but it's very real. It's run by a group of people who are professionals at their job, and they make it uh, as real as it can be. Now, SEER training prepares you for the worst-case scenario. Those of us who have had or are in very specific jobs where the possibility of being behind enemy lines and getting captured is an actual possibility, you must go through SEER school. And it teaches you how to prepare for the interrogation tactics the propaganda, the trickery, the mind games, the torture, everything that will happen to you. Inevitably, the goal of Sears School is that you will fail, you will mess up, but it's to teach you to trust your instructions, to trust the guidance, to trust the training. You must trust the training and do what you've been taught in order to survive a real-world scenario. Now, in my class, I was the senior officer. I was the most experienced, the most educated. I was the oldest, uh, far older than most of my young Marines and Navy members that come through the course with me. And you would think that would help me. But in a couple of instances, my experience and intellect actually hurt me. See, during a couple of my interrogations, the tricks and all that they used came out, and I began to rely on my own intellect on my own reasoning, my own gut feeling about how I should handle the situation. Tired and exhausted, I wanted just to be back in my cell. As bad as the cell was, it was better than interrogations, I'll assure you of that. And I just wanted relief. I wanted to be in my own little bubble. Just leave me alone. Let me get through the training. But the reality check was, training or not, I was in enemy territory. And I needed to learn how to apply the skills I had been taught. And I needed to act like it. So after a couple of failures, you get debriefings in the middle of the training. They pull you aside and go, what's working, what's not? Remember your training. Snap back to it. And I recovered. And like the rest of my colleagues, survived SEER school, graduated, and have 
wonderful stories. Some I can't tell you all, but we share it together, and some I can tell. Now, some of you are asking yourselves, what does this have to do with me, Billy? That's a fascinating story. I'm never going to Sears School. I want nothing to do with Sears School or any version of it, and you are correct in that thinking. Um, but actually, it has a lot to do with you, a lot to do with me, with all of us in this room. So I want to invite you to think deeply with me for a moment. Just think into your own life, in your own spirit, in your own mind, and ask if any of these questions resonate with you. Do you ever feel interrogated or held captive by the culture and its demands on your life? Do you ever find yourself spiritually, mentally, emotionally exhausted, worn out, wanting to just be done? Do you ever struggle to grasp the root cause of your own emotions, your own reactions to the world around you, whether that be your spouse, your children, a coworker, you name it? Essentially, do you ever imagine that there must be better answers to the critical questions, the critical issues that we all face in life? How can you better respond to culture, to politics, to your work, to your family, to your friends, your heart, and your own mind? You see, during the weeks and months that followed Sears School, you, you learn a lot about yourself, and they tell you that going into the course, and you do a lot of debriefings after the course, that you really learn about yourself, what your weaknesses are, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And God began to bubble something up inside of me. It began to come to the surface. It was something really simple, but yet profoundly convicting for me. And so I'm going to be really honest with you for a minute. I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm going to ask you to be honest with yourselves in return. And just think about this one. And here's what God laid on my heart. That the average American Christian, me at the top of the list, because this is where my con the conviction really hit me, seems to regularly commit two fundamental errors in our everyday life. The first one is I don't often recognize, realize, or acknowledge that we are in spiritual battle every day. I'm more concerned with comfort with being socially acceptable, with ease, that I fail to realize how Satan is using the culture at large, non-Christian worldview ideas, propaganda, the trickery that Satan uses, all to influence me and my thinking every day. And I'm especially unaware of this at times in my own tribal affiliations, whether it be my political party, my ideological views, my social media consumption. What about my pop culture entertainment? Or even the conversations with my own friends and coworkers? I often fail to stay vigilant. I don't know about you. Maybe you can admit this as well. But I think we often, we fail to be vigilant in recognizing that Satan is always at work influencing the culture in order to influence us. And he's using these tactics to create dissension, anxiety, fear, anger, mistrust, envy, doubt, and the list goes on. See, Satan uses these tactics for one reason and one reason only, to diminish and degrade our spiritual discipleship and growth, to pull us away from the truth of God's Word. And secondly, 
The second mistake that we, I think we all make, and I know I do often, I'll admit it to you as a pastor standing here, I often respond to issues using the wrong tactics and the wrong methods. Shamefully, I am more likely to go to my own reasoning, my own intellect, my own gut feelings on an issue. I will quote a popular author, Christian or not. I will refer to a psychologist or some new article. Or I'll ask my political, professional, or personal try, what is the socially acceptable course of action for this issue? Long before I engage God's Word in critical thought and prayer, if, if I do that at all, if I do that at all. The great scholar and author C.S. Lewis, in his masterful work, The Screwtape Letters, I think some of you have probably read that, it's a religious satire, it's the portrayal of human temptation. And where Screwtape, the senior demon, is writing to his nephew, a new junior demon, Wormwood, on how to tempt his patient, his man, the human, how to pull him away from God. And here's what he says. This is Screwtape writing to Wormwood. He says, your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily as true or as false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it is strong or stark or courageous. That is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream of immediate sense experience and then teach him to call it real life. My friends, is that not a depiction of the world we're in right now? And if we're honest, of how Satan works within each of us? A.W. Tozer said it more succinctly. He said, Satan's greatest weapon is man's ignorance of God's Word. And the biblical writers, they just cut to the chase even more directly. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, says, we are aliens and strangers. This is not home. In military language, you all, me, we are forward deployed. We are operating in a deployed battle space. In Psalm 23, we all know the classic psalm. It's often called the military psalm or the soldier's psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. And then there's this curious line that so many of us pass over. You prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. In the Hebrew language, it implies that the enemy is literally right on your shoulder, leaning over you, waiting. 1 Peter 5 says, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, we all know Satan's not coming to devour us physically, right? I mean, we know that. But yet we forget that what he's talking about is spiritual warfare, the warfare of ideas, of temptations. And this is often the reality check for us. It should be the reality check for us. God's Word repeatedly reminds us the reality is we are in a spiritual battle. Now, I know for some of you that this may sound a little over the top. It may be a little over-spiritualized, a little extreme. 
And yet then I bet there's another group of you that thinks it's a little simple, maybe Sunday schoolish simple. Yet the fact remains, the tension in there is that we need to remember, we need to acknowledge we are in a spiritual battle and we need to begin acting like it. Now, thankfully, God's Word has something to say about this, and our Savior, Christ Himself, can relate to our circumstances. In Matthew chapter 4, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm only going to be there for a moment, so don't feel like you have to. Um, In Matthew chapter 4, three times Satan tempts Jesus. We're all familiar with this story. Even those who aren't raised in church know the story, some way, shape, or form of Jesus being tempted. But what's interesting about Satan's twisting of biblical truth and twisting of scriptures is Satan repeatedly uses the same three basic temptations from the Garden of Eden to Jesus, the same things he does with us today, at work, at home, in church, wherever we find ourselves. And here they are. Number one, Satan loves to appeal to our desires, our appetites, and our passions. Our desires, our appetites, and our passions, the things we think we really need and want. And number two, an appeal to test God or to doubt God. Is God really capable of what He says He's capable of? Can God really do what He says He can do? Does God's Word say what it actually says? And thirdly, an appeal to power, to possession, to position, and to popularity. My friends, Jesus understood the reality he was in. He didn't use jargon. He didn't use verbal judo. He didn't use some trickery back to Satan. He responded with the correct tactics. He knew the battle he was in. He responded appropriately. With each temptation, Jesus responded with the biblical worldview. He said, it is written. He went to God's Word. Now, think about this with me for a moment. The Logos, the capital L Logos, the Word made flesh, God incarnate used the Logos, God's Word, the written Word, to respond to Satan's tempts and tricks. So the main idea today for me to you, if you walk out of here and you remember nothing at all, if I'm just terribly boring and off base, I hope there's one thing you walk out of here with. The biblical worldview is the reality check for your everyday life. The biblical worldview is the reality check for your everyday life. If you have a copy of scriptures or your electronic device, um, whatever you use, I think some of the scripture texts will be on the screen as well. I want you to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 5. Many of us are familiar with this short passage. And here Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, just a small little caveat here. It's important to know, I know growing up, many times in my life, I would read Scripture, and I thought that Paul was writing to a bunch of old people in ancient times who weren't that smart. I don't know if any of you have ever thought that. You're like, oh, he was just writing to a bunch of first century people. They didn't know as much as we know now. Well, that's actually not true, if you know anything about ancient history. Paul was writing to a group of people who were very educated 
in what would be a metropolis area of commerce and education and a bustling city at the time. He's writing to a very smart group of people. So he's not mixing his words here, and he's not being over-spiritual. He's cutting right to the heart of the matter. And he says that our weapons of warfare, that word there in Greek, the word warfare there is a grand military campaign, an overarching massive war. So don't think or be confused that this is Paul talking about a little skirmish that you're having with a friend or just this minimalist view. He's talking to individuals, but a group of individuals, and saying that we, we all as believers, those following Christ, are in a massive war, and it's a spiritual one. And he says we have the power to destroy strongholds, and you begs the question, well, what are the strongholds, Paul? Well, he answers that. He says we destroy arguments and lofty opinions. Arguments and lofty opinions. Again, in the Greek, it would have read something like this. We were at war with ideas, reasonings, progressive thought, modern philosophies, new ideologies. That was the intent of what he was getting at. Now, I want to be clear here, as Dan introduced me and said, I have a doctor of ministry. It's in worldview, culture, and ideology. I've spent about five years on that degree. I read over 15,000 pages on different worldviews and ideas and philosophies and how that affects politics, culture, social movements, you name it. I am not standing here today saying to you that Christians are against culture. So don't walk out of here thinking that's what I'm saying. But here's what I am saying, and I want to say this very clearly. We, me included, are often woefully unaware of how clever Satan is at using the culture to influence us and pull us away from God's truth. Jeff Myers, in his book, The Secret Battle of Ideas About God, cites these alarming statistics of proclaiming practicing Christians, not just believers, but those who claim to be practicing, church-going, biblical Christians. Here are the statistics. 61% of the thousands that were interviewed and surveyed, 61% agree with ideas rooted in New Age spirituality. 54% resonate with postmodernist views. Postmodernism is the view that there is no truth. You cannot dis discover truth. Truth cannot be discovered. Each person can decide on their own what is good, what is right, what is wrong, what one ought do or ought not do. 38% are sympathetic to ideas associated with Islam, 36% with ideas associated with Marxism, and 29% ideas based on secularism, practicing believers. In January of 2012, when I was still on staff here at Christ Church, the great scholar, cultural critic and scholar and author, Oz Guinness, you remember that, Dan? Oz Guinness came, did a workshop for us. What Dan doesn't know is that, what, that was the moment that launched me into my doctoral studies of worldview and culture. That was the week Oz's uh, information and his teaching just really sparked something in me. But here's one of the things he said to us that really struck home. He encouraged us to face the reality of ministry in the advanced, advanced modern era. I would say we were in the advanced modern era. And here were his recommendations. He said, the right tools for faithful thinking and living were to stand on biblical convictions and from that to engage in critical cultural analysis. Stand on biblical convictions and engage in critical cultural analysis. Trevin Wax, 
in the Christian Worldview Handbook has this to say about all the isms in the world. He says, capitalism, progressivism, socialism, postmodernism, consumerism, relativism, pluralism. The list goes on. All sorts of isms exist in our world, each representing a different outlook on humanity, each with different opinions of the way society should function and how people should behave. Each begins with a simple idea. If we are to be biblical Christians, we must read the Bible in order to read culture. It's important that we as a sent people evaluate the isms of this world in light of God's unchanging revelation. In other words, we read the Bible first so that we will know how to read the news next. We read the Bible first in order to know how to read the news next. Additionally, we read the Bible to know how to engage the people around us with the gospel. To be good missionaries, to be a sent people, we need to have our own minds formed by the Scriptures, and at the same time, we need to understand how people think, the very people we've been called to reach. My friends, I've spent some time here really making this point of how important it is, how critical it is that we recognize as believers that we are operating in this world that God created, but that it is fundamentally flawed right now. It is a spiritual battlefield. And so some of you may be asking, well, Billy, what do I do? What do I do about this? How do I go about this? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to go there now. If you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And I want us to remember today the idea, the maxim, my main point, the biblical worldview is the reality check for your everyday life. That is the answer. That is how we fight the spiritual battle. It's with the biblical worldview. Now, in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 19, I see three practices that we need to employ. Three practices we need to employ. In the Navy, when I was with, with the Navy SEALs and Navy SWICs, um, or any of the special operations forces or expeditionary forces, we often talk about our kit. So if you see any movies or whatever you may watch and all this gear with all these pockets and all this stuff on your back and on your chest and on your side, all of that we just call your kit. That's just, the, that's just how we refer to it. But we use that literally for operations. We talk about the certain things in your kit you need for the operation, for the mission at hand. But we also use it just in everyday language. We'll be running around doing something. Someone will give a good idea or we'll go to some training course and you'll come back and go, man, I got some good stuff for my kit. I just throw it in the kit, use it for later, all right? So what I'm giving you today is what I would say back with my guys. I would go, guys, here's three things for your kit, all right? Here's three ideas for us to employ. First and foremost, number one, face reality trusting God. We must face reality trusting God. Look at verses 10 through 12. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, in Sears school we were taught I'll use the phrase religiously, adamantly, consistently, you must trust the training. You must trust it. If you don't trust it, you will fail. You must trust it. Not your gut, not your own intellect. 
trust the training you've been given. Here, Paul is essentially saying the same thing. He is saying to us as believers, trust God. Face the reality of the circumstances you're in. You must put on the whole armor of God, but it's not your armor. It's God's armor. Trust what you've been given. Trust that God is there with you. Trust that, yes, you're in a fight, but Christ is with you in the fight. You must trust it. You must believe that God knows best and that Christ is with you in the fight. Secondly, after we face reality, trusting God, my second practice for you, for your kit, is to stand firm with the biblical worldview. You must stand firm in the biblical worldview. In verse 13 through 17, Paul continues saying this. He says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore. Are you getting the point? Is Paul driving it home enough? Stand is language for fight. Be ready for the fight. Don't back down. And he goes on to tell you how. With the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and in all circumstances, the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, your offensive weapon, which is the word of God. My friends, we face reality. We stand firm. To do that, we use the training. At first, you trust it, but then you got to use it. It does nothing for you if you don't use it. You have to use what you've been given. So in Seer, we were taught, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how awful it is, you must use what we've taught you. You must constantly go back. There's three or four things that we are constantly taught to say and do, no matter what they throw at you, that they consistently work. Here, Paul is saying, followers of Christ, use what you've been given. You have been given God's Word. You have from Holy Scripture the biblical worldview. And there are all kinds of words and phrases that we all know from theology. We have righteousness, truth, the gospel, faith, salvation, sanctification, all of those things that wrap up into the biblical worldview. So I could preach two or three, four sermons off of this passage of Scripture, but today I just want to give you the impression that we must face the reality, and then we must actually use God's Word. We must actually use what we've been given. It must be a part of our kit every day. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Taking God at His Word, has this to say about thoughtful engagement with the Scriptures in everyday life. He says, if we learn to read the Bible down into our hearts, across the plot line of Scripture, to the end of the story and up to the glory of God in the face of Christ, we will find that every bit of the Bible is profitable for us. To affirm the sufficiency of Scripture is not to suggest that the Bible tells us everything we want to know about everything, but it does tell us everything we need to know about what matters most. My friends, we face reality trusting God. We stand firm with the biblical worldview. And thirdly, we prep with prayer. We prep with prayer. In Seer, we were constantly told, when you're in your cell, when you're moving from place to place, and they've got a hood on you, and you're bound up, or whatever they're doing to you, 
You need to be mentally, emotionally rehearsing for what's coming next because the bad is going to come again. You just got to prepare for it. You got to mentally be preparing for it. In any military operation, we constantly use the phrase, prep the battle space. Let's prep the battle space. What does that mean logistically? Movements, people, personnel, food, whatever it may be, you have to prep the battle space. And here Paul says for the believer, prayer is our prep. In verse 17 through 19, Paul says this, follow along with me. He says, pray in all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. My friends, you must prep with prayer. Prayer has to be a part of your everyday life and not just everyday life, but your moment-by-moment life. And this is part of the conviction that God revealed to me coming out of Sears school was, do I prep before emails I send? Again, as I said before, I don't want to be overly spiritual here, but I think sometimes we're not spiritual enough, if I could be honest with you. Do I prep with prayer before difficult family conversations? Do I prep with prayer before I engage my children? I have four small kids. I love them to death. Their age is soon to be next month, 9 to 14. Our house is chaos. And I love my children dearly. And if I'm honest, there are times, more times than I'd like to admit, that my reactions to them are not covered in prayer. They're just out of my gut feeling and however I'm doing that day. Or with my spouse. Do I prep in prayer? In those moments before we engage in a conversation, sadly, most often, no, I don't. Before workplace disagreements or decisions, before engaging in political conversations, do I prep with prayer? Do I prep with prayer before I engage in social media posting and banter? My friends, to spread the gospel wherever our feet may tread, do we pray each day consistently that God would prepare our hearts and minds moment by moment for where we're going and what we're doing. You see, again, we must be confident. We must walk in confidence that the biblical worldview is the reality check for your everyday life, for my everyday life. Charles Lawless in the Worldview Study Bible, which I'm going to give a shout out here. I didn't write it. But the Worldview Study Bible, I would encourage all of you to grab one. It's got hundreds of articles on how to engage Scripture with the current issues in society. So just a side note there. But in this passage of Scripture on spiritual warfare, Charles, Charles Lawless says this. He says, as followers of Christ, we are to wear the full armor of God, proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, and disciple believers. Taking on the enemy is not about a formula or a technique. It's about a lifestyle a Bible-saturated, God-centered, Jesus-glorifying, Spirit-filled, prayer-driven lifestyle. My friends, hear that again. Bible-saturated, God-centered, Jesus-glorifying, Spirit-filled, prayer-driven lifestyle. When I entered the Navy, or anyone enters any military occupation, you quickly learn that you have gone from occupation to lifestyle. My family will tell you that. 
I do not have a job in the Navy. I don't work for the Navy. We say we are in the Navy because it is a lifestyle. My friends, the Christian life is a lifestyle. You are not just a Christian, commonly understood. You are to live a lifestyle. And I want you to imagine with me, just for a moment, just imagine if this described all of our lives. Can you imagine what this church would be like? Not that it's bad, but as we say in the Navy, there's always better. We're always striving for the next level of performance and success. But can you imagine in this church right here, if that form of lifestyle, biblically saturated lifestyle, what would that look like? What would that sound like? What would it feel like? Can you imagine just for a moment how your life would change if you really embraced Christian lifestyle versus just I'm a Christian? You see, if that doesn't describe you today, that's okay. Just like Sears School, we're constantly given opportunities to rebound, to try again, to learn, to go again and give another try at it. They gave you lots of opportunities and interrogation to perfect the art of using the training. As believers, the grace of God says you have grace renewed each day. You have new mercies and grace given to you moment by moment. As Dallas Willard once said, the average Christian should use grace like a 747 uses fuel on takeoff. My friends, walking out of here today could be the start of a new part of your lifestyle as a believer. A transformation in your marriages, in your parenting, in your workplace. For those of you who are single, in your dating life, in your political engagement, on your sports teams in conversations with your neighbor. If we would but commit to this, can you just imagine the new reality we would live in? The transformation of the culture around us if we would be the transforming agents we're called to be. So as I land this plane today and I conclude, I want to offer you a challenge. Now I realize this church and this congregation, because I once worked here, I still have many friends who are on pastoral ministry here, and I know you're a church of invitation, and I like I invited you on this journey, but now I'm going to give you a challenge because I'm a military chaplain, and that's just what we do, so I'm going to take the liberty of being a military chaplain right now and say I'm going to offer you a challenge. I'm going to challenge you to something. We do a lot of that in the military, right? We love to challenge one another, and our bosses challenge us all the time. But I'm going to call this the six-by-six six challenge, the six-by-six six challenge. Six minutes a day, six days a week. Why not seven, Billy? Because the seventh day is the Sabbath and you get to be here in church. You get that day off. If you don't show up to church, then you got to do a seven-by-seven seven challenge. That's my deal. All right? So the six-by-six six challenge. Your Bible, my Bible, in English translation, is broken into little sections and subsections. You've all seen this in your scriptures. You can read two or three sections in a matter of two to three minutes. So I want to challenge you, starting tomorrow, to find six minutes a day where you take two to three minutes and read a small section of Scripture, and then spend two to three minutes praying about that. 
What is God telling you out of that? How do you apply that to your life and the culture around you? And then you go out and engage the world and live in reality. Now, I do that because I have found in my experience with young adults, with military, all of the experiences I've had, too many of us try to jump into the Scripture reading world by saying, I'm going to start reading 30 minutes a day. And four days later, you're done with that. Nod some heads. We know what I'm talking about, many of us. All right? Habit science tells us that if you start small, you'll be more successful. So I'm letting you start small. Start small and work to wherever God takes you. But start small, just six minutes a day. Remember, the biblical worldview is the reality check for your everyday life. When you leave this building today, when you walk out those doors and you go out there into the parking lot and you get into your car and you go to wherever life takes you, you are entering enemy territory again. You are going back out into the battle space. Face reality, trusting God. Stand with the biblical worldview and prep with prayer. Blessings to you all. It's been my privilege to be here. Amen.